Well, hi there. It's great to be with you. Uh, We're in a series on the Gospel of Luke called The King and His Cross. And if you've been following through the series, you'll be expecting Luke chapter 22 today, which is where that's what I was expecting to preach on as well. Um, But because of the situation in the nation, we really felt it would be appropriate to give a slightly different message in the context of this series. And so if you do have a Bible and could turn to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, that would be great. We're going to read a bit from Luke 8 and then a little bit from Mark chapter 6. We just felt like that would be a, a better way of serving everybody in the church at this moment, given the crisis our nation is facing with the coronavirus. And we need to be real because we are, as a, as a church, as a city, as a nation, we are in a storm right now. And we are approaching the eye of the storm, probably, as we're speaking and, and spending this morning together. It, things are very, very difficult. They are of a type that most of us do not remember. Unless we're very old and can remember the Second World War, we are unlikely to have experienced something quite like this before. We feel, uh, I'm sure this is true for you as well, but we feel like we are threatened, don't we? We feel like our health is threatened. We feel like, you know, my family were self-isolating a week before the lockdown started because um, my wife was showing some symptoms and so we've been sort of locked down now for over three weeks and many of us, I think, are just aware that our health is under threat in a way that most of the time we don't feel like it is. We feel like our lives are threatened. A number of people in the church who have already lost family members and friends and colleagues to the coronavirus. And even those of us who haven't feel a very strong sense this could happen to us. This could happen to me. It either can happen directly personally to me or it could happen to someone I know well. who, And I would then experience that loss. And so we feel like our lives are threatened. And that, I guess, is particularly acute for those of us who work in healthcare, those who work in frontline services. So there's a very real threat that we've experienced, not just to our well-being, but to our very lives. Our prosperity is threatened. Some of us, this is where it kicks in. It's not the likelihood, perhaps we might not feel the likelihood that we will get sick. We might, however, be already experiencing the reality of a loss of a job or of a loss of business or of reduced hours on being on furlough and or income reduction. And even if we don't, it's more difficult than normal to get food or to get basic supplies. Some of us are relying on other people for those things for meeting our healthcare needs. So our prosperity is threatened. Our relationships are threatened. Many of us are not able to see our parents or our children, or both, because it would be dangerous to do that. We can't see our friends or our colleagues except on a screen. And of course, we can't gather as a church, which for so many of us is, me included, is the place where we go to find a sense of reassurance when everything is challenging. And we're in a very rich, well-organized country, aren't we? Compared to many, we have got, you know, we've got a free press, we've got free healthcare, we've got billions of pounds to throw at the problem if we have to. And we're probably aware, many of us, that if we come from nations or have close friends in nations that have nothing like the resources we do, we're looking anxiously around the world thinking, well, what's going to happen when that crisis hits there? We feel under threat. And people who've been around a lot longer than me say, that this is the biggest upheaval, the worst crisis like this we've experienced since the Second World War. It feels rocky. It feels like a time of everything being shaken and unstable. It feels scary to many of us. That's the bad news. 
That's real. The good news is that we have a saviour who specialises in bringing peace to storms. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, and then I'm also going to read from Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45. So let's read Luke 8, beginning at verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filled with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And then Mark chapter six, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of God. These are two different stories about Jesus calming storms. <laughs> Most of us, I think, would be pretty happy with doing it once, but Jesus does it at least twice and in completely different ways. You notice how different these two stories are. They're completely different incidents. It's not two different versions of one story. In the first story, Jesus is asleep in the boat with the disciples when the storm starts and he gets woken up. And he silences the storm with a word. Shh, peace, be still. And the second story, completely different. He's up on the mountainside praying and he walks across the water to the terrified disciples. He gets into the boat with them and then the wind ceases. Now I think both of those stories can really help us when it comes to how to survive a storm like the one we're in now. And you never forget your first storm at sea. I don't know how many of you have experienced a storm at sea, but I remember the first time it happened to me, I was 14 and I was on a ship that was on its way from uh, Esbjerg in Denmark to Harwich you know, across the North Sea. And we were a, you know, a few hours away from, we'd left Denmark, we were in the middle of the North Sea somewhere, who knows, and this storm starts. And I have never, still now, have never experienced anything like it. This massive ship is just lurching all over the place. Me and my brothers and sisters think it's great fun. We run up to the upper deck and start playing hide and seek because it turns out you're running and then the boat goes down and massively keels downwards and you just can't even stop because the ground has disappeared from under your feet and you just go flying. I mean, we're just having a whale of a time probably not really aware of how dangerous it is. And then eventually we head to the side door of them and they hadn't yet shut them. 
Uh, health and safety was a bit different back then. And we get to the, out, to the door into the outside and we force the door open and then five of the six of us start walking out onto the deck and my sister is just in hysterics. She's just screaming and wailing and won't go. And so in the end, my mum has to stay with her and then the other four of us climb up the steps towards the upper deck and we stand there in, in the middle of this incredible storm, in the, in the dark, in the middle of the night, with the water just pelting, a bit like water cannons being fired at this perspex screen in front of us. It's just breathtaking power. And we later found out that the ship had had to drop anchor for 17 hours because the storm was so violent and the ship couldn't have gone anywhere. And the storm had even set oil rigs off their moorings and they're just floating around the North Sea. I mean, it was a proper storm. Storms are scary, and at moments like that are exhilarating in a way, but they're also terrifying. And the reason they're so scary is because everything that we normally place our confidence in is not there. That's why a storm at sea is so much worse than a storm on the land, because the land's not there. So all the fixed points you have, gravity, you know, the sort of the, maybe they're being stone or rock or something under your feet, that's not there. So you're lurching all over the place and you're trying to steady yourself, but the things that you're trying to steady yourself on are themselves also being thrown all over the place. And it feels impossible to find your feet because everything's up in the air. And I think it really feels a bit like that for many of us right now. I think as a society, we're going through a, a time of trying to lean on things that are normally very secure and steady and finding that they're not there or they're so totally different they don't feel like they are. And it might be that for you, it's just going your daily routine of going to a cafe and picking up a coffee on your way into work. Or it might be a particular shop or it might be your extended family or even the church and those things that you're used to going to and say, oh, this will steady me in the storm of my life. They've gone too. And they're not able, they're not available for you to lean on at this time. And they're being thrown into flux. And for some of us, many of us maybe, this is our first storm. It's the first time in our lives we've experienced that. The things we do in normal times to fix a crisis aren't working. We feel powerless before the created order. In this case, it's a tiny little monster that's one billionth of our size that's trying to kill us. And the disciples in this storm are in a very similar position. They're being tossed around by the force of creation with none of the usual tricks they would use working and nowhere to turn to. And worst of all, Jesus is asleep. What's he doing? Master, master, we're perishing, they say in verse 24. In one of the other gospels, they actually ask, don't you care that we are perishing? Did you see their, their fear has messed with their theology and they're beginning to think wrong thoughts about Jesus because they're so afraid. And even the way the story's told is got this kind of slightly panicky feel to it, hasn't it? Where until Jesus wakes up, pretty much every verb until the point that Jesus wakes up is about the disciples. They set out, they sailed, they filled with water, they were in danger, they woke him, they went, they said. It's filled with things about what they're doing and none of the things they're doing are any good. You might feel like that today. You might feel like a storm has broken out and everything's lurching everywhere and all the usual things you go to for peace and stability have gone and you've got nothing. And then Jesus wakes up. Then Jesus wakes up. The king of the storm rises and he silences the raging deep with a word. Just like he will rise and silence the raging deep of death on Easter Sunday. 
the king of the storm gets up and he exercises his divine authority to silence the storm and to silence the power of sin and death and to silence the forces of chaos and darkness and the devil himself who are raged against his people. And he says, be still. And they go totally silent, instantly. And he awoke, verse 24, and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. Simple as that. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus is asleep. And then Jesus gets up, presumably still with sleep in his eyes, and says, shh. Instantly, the waves fall silent before the king of the storm. I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible does here. The Jesus Storybook Bible makes this comment about the waves. It said, they went quiet. They had heard his voice before. They recognized the voice of the God who had called them into being in the first place. And they responded in submissive obedience to go immediately quiet the moment he told them to. By the way, the coronavirus has heard his voice before. You know that? There is nothing that has been made without being made in and through Christ. He is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over your storm and mine. He is the king of the storm. He's the king of the virus as well. And when he says, be still, everything goes quiet. Sometimes in my house, I get woken up by my children in the middle of the night worrying about something that to me doesn't seem like a big deal, but to them it clearly does. And uh, one thing that my son has on occasion done is uh, he has this sort of little yellow grow clock. Uh, it goes blue at night, yellow in the day, and it tells him when he's allowed to get up. And he's on more than one occasion, I've heard him go, and I've kind of and wandered down the corridor into his room and he's so distressed and he's going, there's an ant on my clock. There's an ant on my clock. What you can see is like a little fly or something is just walking across the face of the clock. It looks terrifying to him because it's this little dark monster in the middle of the night and you're just a child. That kind of thing can really scare you. And I'm not even awake yet. And I just look at it and go, oh, okay. And I just flick the ant away, just boom like this and blunder back to bed and fall asleep again. And he's comforted and he goes back to sleep again as well. There's just absolutely nothing to this thing so far as I'm going to It's terrifying to him, but to me it's just like, oh, it's just, mm, just get rid of that. That's how Jesus treats the storms of life. That's what Jesus can do to your storm. It's what he's going to do to mine. Jesus steps in and says, that thing, that's not a problem for me at all. Shh. And he just gets rid of it with a flick of his finger with a word. He silences the thing which is terrifying us. And then he responds to them with this incredulous question. Where's your faith? If you only knew the king of the storm, you would trust his power over the forces of nature and his power to deliver you from them. And that's why the disciples' response is one of fear. You notice it says in verse 25, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? You think, why are they afraid? The storm's finished. Why are they scared? They're scared because they, although they feel the same emotion, fear, as they did while the storm was still going, now the storm is finished, they feel the same emotion, but with a different object. They are no longer afraid of the storm. They are now afraid, in an even greater measure, of the king of the storm. Because there's one thing scarier than a storm, and that's the power of a person who can silence a storm with a word. It's a totally different kind of fear. 
It's the kind of fear you have of one who is for you rather than the fear you have of something smaller that might be against you. We might use a word like awe or wonder to describe that fear. It's fear mingled with delight. It's fear mingled with exhilaration because you know that anybody who is powerful enough to silence a storm with a word has got to be a lot bigger and mightier and scarier than the thing you were scared of in the first place. And that fear mingled with delight is what we experience when something we are frightened of, like a storm or a virus, gets overcome by somebody far greater, like a saviour. In fact, often you can end up fearing the one who is for you more than you feared the one who was against you. You know the end of the first Jurassic Park movie, right? Sam Neill, Laura Dern and the kids. Uh, sorry, if you haven't seen it, spoil the ending again, but they're standing there surrounded by three velociraptors who are crowding in on them and these things are going to rip them to pieces and eat them and they've been the villains of the piece for the last 40 minutes of the movie and they are terrified of them. And then just as they think they're about to die, a massive Tyrannosaurus Rex that they've met much earlier in the movie appears out of nowhere, stretches down, picks up the Velociraptor in his teeth and hurls it into the banner. And when dinosaurs rule the earth, banner collapses on the stage and the Velociraptors are torn to pieces by this giant monster. And there's a moment there where the children are in a way far more fearful of the Tyrannosaurus Rex who is for them than all the velociraptors who are against them. The T-Rex is miles bigger, miles stronger, incomparably greater, and yet they fear it in a totally different way because they know it's not trying to kill them, it's actually trying to save them. It's what happens in the Narnia stories when you are scared of the witch because she's against you, but you are in some ways far more scared of Aslan, who is powerful enough to have his roar send her scurrying over the hills in fear because she knows she can't take him on. It's why the little lions in The Lion King are in some ways more scared of Mufasa than of the hyenas. You remember that scene when Mufasa says, you deliberately disobeyed me, Simba, and he's really disappointed in them. But there's a, there's a fear they have of him that is greater than the fear they have of the hyenas. Hyenas are nothing compared to Mufasa, but Mufasa is for them and therefore they are scared of him, but in a totally different way. It's a fear mingled with delight and it's the fear the disciples fear here. That's how you and I fear the king of the storm. We fear the one who is for us but he is mighty and strong to save and to abolish and overcome the power of the storm. And we know he could, if he wanted to, destroy us in a moment, but we also know that he won't, that he's going to use that enormous power to rescue us and not just to rescue us from this storm or this virus, but from the power of sin and death and the devil itself. Who is this, we ask, that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is possibly strong enough to do that for us? But the next question that sometimes comes up, must come up at this point, if you say, okay, well, that's fine, Andrew. If, if the wind and the waves are, sub are subdued before Jesus, that's fine. But what happens if we've asked him to bring peace to the ocean or the nation and the storm is still raging? What happens then? And that's why we also need the second story, the story that we read in Mark chapter six. Jesus has been praying on the hillside and he can see that his disciples are floundering in the face of tough winds. And he comes towards them, walking on the water, and they're terrified and they think he's a ghost. But this time, he doesn't simply silence the waves. Yet. He will, but he doesn't yet. He could, but he doesn't. 
Instead, he says these amazing words. Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he climbs into the boat with them and it's only then that the raging ceases. Sometimes Jesus calms the storm immediately in our lives, in our nation. And when he does, we find in some ways him even scarier than the thing we were frightened of, but in a good way because we fear the one who's for us. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't immediately quieten the thing which is oppressing us. But when he doesn't yet, and he will, but when he doesn't yet, he gives us two things that will help us and sustain and strengthen us no matter what storm we are facing. He reminds us who he is and he gets into the boat with us. Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. In Greek, that phrase, it is I, is actually just the way that you would normally say, I am. It's the way that you would translate the divine name, the name of God, I am. Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. There's someone here who's bigger than your storm, who's bigger than the coronavirus. He's bigger than death and he is for you. You should take courage because the God of eternity is here. Take heart, I am is with you, fear not. And then we read, and he got into the boat with them. Verse 51, and it's only after that that the wind finally calms down. And that is why Christianity has resources for people in a crisis like nothing else does. There's no other system of thought that has within it, at the heart of it, the idea that God has come into the boat with you in the midst of your storm. It's because that's why Christian symbolism is so powerful at this time. That's why people are putting biblical symbols like rainbows in their windows and writing op-eds about Jesus in the newspapers. It's because like, unlike any other God, Jesus doesn't remain distant from your storm or your suffering or your vir our virus. Jesus gets into the boat with us. He doesn't remain distant. He takes on flesh and experiences suffering and danger and crisis himself. He is a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. He feels the touch of a woman who's supposed to be social distancing. He visits lepers who are in self-isolation. He gets into the boat of human crisis and he sits with us until the raging storms are over. And while it continues to rage, he says, take heart, I am, fear not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way in which Jesus comes to be among us and to stand with us and to reassure us and to comfort us in the middle of the storm. Lord, I'm, I'm praying to you today. We are all praying to you now in all our different locations across South London. We are calling out to you to come and bring healing and deliverance, that you would be mighty and strong to save, that you would destroy this storm of a virus that is afflicting this nation in all manner of different ways and is afflicting people in our community. Lord, we pray for you to destroy the works of the devil. And we also ask you, Lord, that you would give us strength to stand until the moment when it's all gone. We pray that you would empower us. You would give us grace. You would give us courage. You would help us to take heart in the fact that the I am is in this boat with us. That we would not be afraid. That we would be wise, but we would not be fearful. 
Lord, that we would not be fearful of our own lives. We would not even be fearful of death itself. We would not be fearful of any of the consequences that may come because the I am is with us. And we pray for you to comfort us, to reassure us, to stand with us, to remind us of the presence of God that is there with us in this storm at all times through your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would both destroy the work of the enemy in this nation and comfort us while we wait for that glorious release from captivity to darkness. We pray in Jesus' name, would you strengthen us and would you heal us? Amen.